Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Mark Balin from MyCo. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a special holiday edition, right? <laughs> Heck yes. You have your, I believe, Santa hat in your Twitter profile picture. So yes. it's very timely. <laughs> very timely. Yeah, we love the holidays. <laughs> I love everybody's little editions of Santa hats on their Twitter PFPs. Like they've just been photoshopped onto their NFTs, which is like my favorite part. But <laughs> I am so excited to talk Web3 Social with you. Mm. I think it will be really fun. I know you have a lot of thoughts on a bunch of different interesting aspects of the consumer experience of Web3. Before mm. we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? I know you've been in the space for a while, so would love to hear what that journey was like and what it's been like now during the crazy bull market that we're in. Sure. Yeah. I guess just to kick off, I got into crypto way back in 2016. Honestly, very much by luck. I got like an internship at Deloitte and I had been just interested in distributed systems and things like that. I was studying computer science and business and I got this internship and it turned out that they were really heavily focusing on like blockchain technology as they were calling it at that point. But really between the lines was Ethereum. And so they, you know, threw us in the deep end and started writing some smart contracts at a time when that was a very difficult thing to do. I was still like, I was an intern. So I went back to school. Built around just like different POCs and stuff. That was always my specialty. Um, went and did an internship at Consensus way back when there was only like 120 people, which was a fun, a fun ride. Um, went back to school after that Consensus internship and actually started building a product that ended up coming to fruition, which is a product called um, the Bounties Network. The goal there kind of just like powering, you know, bounties and freelance tasks for this kind of new era of tokenized communities or tokenized projects, whatever they were, that sort of 2017, 2018 vintage of ICOs. And really just trying to figure out how you can use these one-off or very customized incentives for these different types of actions and pull people in and get them excited and all that stuff. Um, I spent a bunch of time helping to build the Ethereum community, running meetups, starting a meetup at Waterloo, helping to run the first ETH Waterloo hackathon, which ended up turning into ETH Global. And then, yeah, just built out the bounties network stuff. We were a little bit early to market. We powered the Gitcoin's bounties and a few other things, but it was still a little early for this sort of open marketplace protocol thesis. It was a little early to market. So um, we kind of sunsetted the project. And yeah, since then, I've been lucky enough to find my co-founder, Aria, and we've been building Myco now for almost a year and a half now. So it's been a little while. And yeah, just like love crypto. And so beyond that work, like this sort of you know, work I do as a founder and, and building the platform and stuff. I also just like love NFTs, have worked on a bunch of different NFT projects, one of which I think is actually the first performance art NFT back in like 2020. And then have helped launch, you know, the Pixel Portraits project. I traded lots of NFTs. So I'm deep in that space, but more as a user actually than than as a sort of builder. I have so many different avenues I want to go down. But before <laughs> we do that, what does a performance art NFT entail? What does that mean? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I'll just like tell you what the project was. Basically, I got connected to this artist guy, really smart. Him and his, the sort of two people leading it, him and, and this other girl, Emily Mast, they were trying to do this project in COVID where uh, they were trying to get 
these different performance artists to each kind of make a different clip of themselves and what they were experiencing. The project is called How Are We? If you go to howareweexyz you'll see that. And so basically it's, yeah, these different artists performing out how they were feeling during COVID. And what we wanted to do was make a time capsule for, for the project. So we issued it as an NFT and like anchored it on chain in a very sort of traditional sense for this like 20 minute video. And then what we also did is release like an, an ERC-20 token to all the contributors uh, of that project. So like each of the artists got a number of tokens, the lawyer who helped us draft it got a bunch of tokens, I got some tokens as well for helping to do the smart contract and, you know, Ethereum related stuff. And so it was like a very early experiment in like the gang launches a performance art NFT together. Um, <laughs> it hasn't been sold or anything like that. We just got a grant and distributed that. And maybe in a few years, once the COVID stuff calms down and people can look back on the time fondly or with like interest, anthropologically speaking, I think that'll be like an interesting piece of work. That's really cool. Yeah. I love this idea of archivism. Sursu has talked a bit about that where you have this record of everything that happened in a given time period with who actually ideally came up with the thing. Of course, mm -hmm. NFTs, unless everything's on chain, it's hard to be like, yes, that thing actually happened for the first time on chain. But in any case, I think that's super cool. How interesting. And yeah, it feels like people like Shlomes now have a lot of these like performance sort of art NFT type experiences that are popping up. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how the space evolves so quickly. So, so, so quickly. And yeah, artists are doing such interesting things with NFTs these days. I, I you know, couldn't have expected it. So yeah, it's, it's wonderful. The whole space feels very unexpected, which I'm sure is actually interesting for you. I know you've thought a lot about what social might look like in Web3. I'm curious, A, what does it look like? What is your thesis on it? But also... How have you seen that thesis change over the last few years? I mean, the first thing that I'll say is that, again, thinking from like a sort of like information architecture perspective, um, Web3 social is like a misnomer because if you're talking about social applications, um, you know, where people are like, and again, focusing mostly on like kind of a content or messages or posts or these sorts of things, because that's like a sort of very basic social interaction on the internet. They don't need to be on blockchains. There's like a ton of work that's already been done completely outside of what we typically think of as Web3, Secure Scuttlebutt, Matrix. We use Matrix for Myco. That was the one we ended up going with. But there's like a bunch of these different efforts that have been underway for a very long time around like peer-to-peer -peer chat or peer-to-peer -peer messaging, peer-to-peer -peer interactions where it's similarly permissionless, trustless, can't be stopped. But like it doesn't actually need to be on a blockchain. You know, blockchains are like, you, you know, consensus among many different parties and, and around sources of truth. And you like don't really need that for a social message because as long as you have a the digitally signed message, it doesn't need to be sort of like on chain. And so I think that was like where things first started was like, oh, what if we put messages on the blockchain? And then quickly people realized, I think that wasn't necessarily like that meaningful and usually like very expensive. Then things kind of moved into like, well, what if there was incentivized social media, things like Steemit and those types of experiments? I think there've been a bunch since then, which I think are like really cool and interesting as well. But I think cause a lot of problems when they're not done within the context of particular communities, which are maybe like private or have certain like trust assumptions. When you just have like an open platform where every message you post earns you some tokens, things tend to get like gamed very quickly. And so um, that sort of avenue didn't end up going anywhere really that meaningful. And these days, like now when we think of Web3 Social, it's like Telegram Room or Discord Room or whatever. And I think like a lot of my view of Web3 Social is more in that sort of vein in the sense of like, Web3 is Web3 in in the sense that it's like an anchor um, for a group's activities. You might, if they all like are incentivized by the same token, for instance, like they can have their activities like on the blockchain sort of tie them together. And then in the real world, there's things that they do that are not on chain that don't have anything to do technically speaking with Web3, besides the fact that like the individuals themselves own these tokens. And so ultimately, like when, when I step back and like right now, what does Web3 social look like? I do think that there's a, a sort of meaningful market opportunity around messaging addresses. I think this is probably like the only thing when I when people talk about like, this trend and VCs and stuff love to talk about Web3 social. That to me is like the only thing that's like really that interesting is send a message to an Ethereum address because there's just no other way to do that. And there are a number of instances where that would be useful. The flip side of that, of course, is you need the network effects of people to be able to actually receive those messages and, and check them and all that stuff. And without like deep wallet integrations, notifications become hard. So there's like a bunch of problems there as well. But I do think that's like a meaningful and interesting idea space. 
Um, but yeah, going back, ultimately, I think like most of Web3 social, as we think about it right now, is like very overhyped, kind of like the metaverse stuff. It's very overhyped. It's very buzzy. But like when you actually look at the sort of meat and potatoes of it is a lot less meaningful than I think a lot of people expect it might be. Yeah, I agree in a lot of ways in the sense that I think content, whether it's text, image, it doesn't really matter. I think Web3 is not uniquely positioned to handle content that facilitates human connection any better than Web2 is necessarily. But it does feel like in some ways, and I think Maiko kind of touches on this a little bit, ownership does feel like a new way for humans to connect. I think what's interesting about how Web3 has evolved, particularly more recently, as we have more things that we can do on chain, like buying NFTs and investing in random stuff and all that, it does kind of feel like co-ownership is becoming this mechanism for humans to connect with each other in a way that they just haven't been able to before, particularly because ownership feels so vulnerable. And it feels like Myco in in a lot of what you guys are doing is sort of getting at this. And I guess one probably good thing to do would be to cover what Myco is. But then I have a follow-up question for you on philosophically how we think about what Web3 actually means. Wow, that sounds like a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, we'll start with the easy stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely, I think you're right that like ownership, you know, people being tied together by shared ownership creates a deep sense of, of connection. That's absolutely true. People talk about like aligning incentives, which is a very vague thing. But practically speaking, yeah, like you like people more when they also hold the same bags that you hold, which is just like some weird social dynamic that just happens to be true. The vulnerability aspect, I think, is a big part of it. Stepping back a little bit, yeah. So Maiko, to give you a, a sort of a high-level overview, Maiko is uh, a kind of like DAO platform targeted at people who don't know anything about DAOs. You know, the pitch to them is you have a group of people who all want to either build like a social network together or a social club or you know, social business, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they want to start making money together. How do you get a group of people on the internet to easily be able to work together, to have shared ownership, to be able to move money around really efficiently and do so in a way that's like uh, very responsive and, and lower stakes than, you know, what we typically think of as like, you know, you have to like start a company and you have to, you know, go get a bank account, register all these things. And it's like a super high overhead process. Our, our kind of like take is, you know, what if we do things very similar to the DAO space with some differences, of course, and package it all up in such a nice, easy to use way that anybody with a high school diploma basically can start like an internet native social business with their friends, which again, yeah, zooming out looks a lot like DAOs, but implementation wise, there's some differences. So what I think is interesting that this sort of brings up the question of is what does something need to be to actually be Web3? Because to me, one of the core foundations of Web3 is ownership. And so it's cool if tokens represent that ownership. But if you have an entity that's also fairly paying like contributors or rewarding contributors in ownership and is digitally native. Is that Web3? Like, I guess the question is really, is Web3 a philosophy or a technical implementation? Personally, I'm very strongly in the opinion that it's more of a philosophy. There was something, this guy, Igor, I think he's he's no longer there anymore, but he was an old mentor of mine at Consensus. And he, he used to say that crypto is just this like way to get private keys in the hands of individuals to be able to like sign messages themselves. And that's so much powerful stuff is enabled even by that alone if we don't depend on like web2 platforms to manage our keys and so i think like to that point yeah like even just traditionally signing like legal documents but with a private key is like a little web3 to me or that ownership piece that you mentioned i think is a very like web3 mindset you know even DAOs, i think are very much like a kind of a mindset and on the flip side i think there's a lot of entities that are calling themselves DAOs that are maybe even crypto native but in my opinion, do not justify or are not actually DAOs or it's like when we see a lot of like tokens, for instance, people like to talk about tokens being like ownership in a network without any of the sort of like actual most meaningful aspects of ownership, which again, when you get down to it, usually is like value rights or financial rights or these like these sorts of things. Owning like a utility token in a network is not like actually owning the network. Governance tokens, things start to get tricky and blurry. But yeah, I think there's a lot of like things that are calling themselves Web3, which are actually like very Web2 just on the blockchain. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, which kind of brings us to this question of 
what does make something a DAO? Like what makes it Web3? What is unique about it? I feel like I ask this question a lot on the podcast because it's something where exactly to your point, we see a lot of companies and things coming into the space that are using Web3 language, but maybe don't have all of the things that we think makes Web3 unique and special. And so I kind of feel like, well, I don't think it's binary. Trying to articulate what makes something a DAO and what makes Web3 special feels really important. So to you, what makes something a DAO? I think there's a lot of it that comes from the approach of the people building it, which is usually one of trying to distribute responsibility, distribute ownership to like the edges rather than trying to aggregate it in the middle and doing that in a very like literal, meaningful sense, not this sort of like fictitious or what appears very fictitious, at least from the outside um, for a lot of these DAOs, you know, where you have like core group of people who are clearly the ones making decisions in private groups and private channels. They create a proposal that the community like automatically assumes is going to pass and then you have this the the crowd like the community voted for it like the community approved it when in reality it's clear like there's other sort of like political elements happening behind the scenes the alternative to that again in my head being like DAOs actually try to distribute as much like very real responsibility to their edges to people who are just joining people who are just getting in the people who are running the DAOs like don't want the power they don't want the responsibility they don't want even to own large portions of what they're building because they recognize the meaning and the value in, in having things be co-owned and co-managed and co-operated. Um, so from that perspective, I think DAOs are very much like a mindset in the sense of no one's in charge to a certain degree. I do think there's like room for responsibility and management and all those sorts of things as well. Like not all decentralized decision-making is bad, but I think like the, the approach and the intent there has to be one of decentralization and moving towards that. Otherwise, I think like it stops being a DAO. And then within that framework, hopefully you're like managing a pool of money. That I think is like a pretty big piece of the, the DAO, whatever equation, having a token, hopefully that you can use or some instrument that you can use to like reward contributors uh, really efficiently. I think that's like a pretty big one. And then I think there is an element of a social space or a, a, a layer on which like members of that group can talk to each other, whether that's like in person or in a discord room or something else. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting, this idea of decentralized versus distributed power to endows, which feels like probably a distinction that we need to figure out as we move forward. But I, I really like this idea that DAOs are about giving trust to people, basically, and trusting them to hand off power. When you think about this in the context of people building these communities within MICO or outside of it, I do think that handing off power can be scary to people. I'm curious how you see people approach that who are building these communities, because it does kind of feel like this awkward moment for people, or maybe awkward is the wrong word. Maybe it's just hard, but a hard moment for people to like actually pass off decision-making power. And if that's the distinguishing factor, I think it's interesting to dive into what that actually looks like in practice. It's. I think you're absolutely right. It's extremely difficult. I think it's extremely vulnerable. For a lot of people who are used to creating alone, who are used to like being able to oversee the quality of outputs. It's really hard yeah, to like trust people blindly, so to speak, or, or not have like any oversight over the things other people are doing. And I think it like helps when you can decouple your own sort of like personal brand from the activities of the group, such that in the sort of worst case, the risk is not so high for you as an individual or as a creator. But the flip side of that, which I do think is like important and relevant is like, the alternative to creators not giving away responsibility and ownership to the community around them or the community who wants to build with them um, is that they have to do it all themselves. And this is something that we see in the sort of like web two creator space as also being super damaging where these creators are on these like hamster wheel. You, know, you have to keep producing content once a week, every week, can't take a break, can't take a vacation. The second you step away, your audience starts to melt away. And, and I think that's like really tough and really damaging as well. And so sure, it's very difficult and hard to give away power and ownership, but the flip side is potentially even worse in the long run. And so it sometimes might take some like messy learning to, to get to that point where you're ready to do that. But I think like some of the most interesting DAO experiments happen when that happens, when sort of creators are very comfortable kind of stepping back into the shadows and letting the many kind of like drive the DAO. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that hopefully we start to see more of. It'll be interesting if that also creates more 
headless brands just because people don't want to be putting their own reputation as creators on the line. Of course, you have a flip side of that where people like Holly Herndon and others are saying, manage my voice, which is interesting. But this brings up a cool point that we were talking about before we started recording, which I think is probably a pretty spicy take of yours. I would put it in the spicy category that, you know, this idea of like creators having to be on this like hamster wheel all the time working and working does kind of remind me of the way that DAOs and a lot of tokenized communities start to feel when you have prices that are constantly changing, honestly, often based on the way the public views the community and the value that they're creating. And so I do kind of wonder if we're just creating a new hamster wheel. I know you have thoughts on whether tokens should be publicly traded in the first place, but curious to hear your initial thoughts on that. Yeah, I so the important context I'll give for anyone who's listening is like I, you know, like made it through the 2018, 2019, 2020 bear market and you know that was like a very what I'll say is like traumatic experience. <laughs> it's a wonderful one, but it, you know, deeply traumatic in in certain ways. And so I want people to recognize like this could be completely wrong. Maybe we're in a super cycle, there's never a bull market or bear market again and don't listen to Mark. That's like the disclaimer that I'll give before I share I'll share these insights. I like um, the caveats before yeah, that's any like, very like here are the things that you need to, this is the nuance that you won't get on Twitter. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Nuance is important. So okay, so getting into the sort of like tradable token stuff, we see that there's this thing called like reflexivity, right? Where this positive feedback loop, if you will, where like you have a community, they get the tokens, token value goes up, they work harder, they contribute more, they pull in more people, whatever, some sort of growth happens, token responds by growing even more. And it's a sort of like virtuous cycle, right? And we see that during bull markets where token prices explode, productivity explodes, attention explodes, everything goes up, we have this like, massive, positive feedback loop that is really, really you know, exciting and causes a lot of like really cool things to be built. What I've seen personally in my life and as a member of the Ethereum community is that the opposite side of that, when the token starts to dip, can be really hard. Tokens dipping, of course, like affects your livelihood and whatever. But even if your livelihood is taken care of, even if you have a full-time job, like tokens dipping has a way of affecting your mental health and your mental state. And the important reason for that is that like when you have a publicly tradable token and you've attached a degree of your identity or your sort of value judgment for yourself is based on the price of these tokens, it's based on what other people think of you or what other people are pricing you know, your, your thing, for, like the price that they attribute to that thing. And so hmm. you like don't actually have a sort of like intrinsic motivation. It's like when you think of self-love versus relying on third parties to like tell you you're great, right? Like you ultimately want to be grounded in yourself. And when you have a publicly tradable token, you can't do that because you're constantly at the whims of the market judging you or pricing and whatever. And of course you can get good at blocking that out and that becomes like super necessary in a bear market. But from what I've seen, it causes so many people to to not just leave, but leave and never come back. Because the whole experience is so traumatic that not only do they leave, but anytime, even when the token maybe returns to that original price, like the whole experience ended up being traumatic, that it like, they, they still won't come back, or they have a sour taste in their mouth. Versus you might think of as the alternative where you don't have that crazy growth at the beginning because of this like positive reflexivity. But the key there is people also don't leave as much because the token like doesn't dump as much, right? Or the token doesn't dump at all because it's not publicly tradable. And so you like lose out on some of the upside in the early times, but you don't have that downside later. And you end up having much stickier sort of a community members and users and things like that because people weren't just attracted because of like speculative reasons. And the only people you brought in are the ones who like actually care about what's happening, these sorts of things. So this market cycle has been really incredible because there's so many new people who have joined or people who have become deeper and and are launching a lot of these really excellent projects and and are doing really cool things. But there's a part in my heart that feels very sad because if and or when a a bear market does come, there's just going to be a lot of pain because I think a lot of people just don't recognize like what happens to tokens when there's a liquidity pool that can go to zero or what happens to tokens after projects are sunsetted and how that reflects on people and all these different things. And there's, of course, like these norms are still developing, but it's like painful and it's very volatile and it can affect like your personal life. Even if you have like a web two job outside of crypto, like it still can affect your kind of like mental health and these sorts of things. So I always try to give like very conservative kind of 
takes on this stuff that are often end up being very contrarian in, in the bull market, which I'm fine with because I just, I've seen it happen and I like know the pain and I'd rather say something and be wrong than not have said something, have it happen and then be like, oh, actually I had a feeling this might happen the whole time, but I kept my mouth shut because it would be unpopular. That to me, I don't really care about that. Yeah. I think this is such a good point, particularly this idea that self-worth or worth of a community is tied to this external judgment, I think is a really interesting analogy. And I love the idea that identity, I mean, I guess I don't love it in this context, but I think the idea that identity and the value of these tokens going up are really like interconnected. And I think that's a really big challenge for us in this space and the way that we currently talk about ownership and tokens and all of these things, because it does feel like the open sort of nature of them is part of what makes them interesting because it's accessible. And it's something where if I want to be part of a community, I can just go on OpenSea or Uniswap and I can buy that thing and be part of it. So I'm watching my brain react to this where everything that you're saying completely resonates. And then I'm also like, oh, damn, I love that things are open and accessible. And so I'm curious how you think about better ways to approach this, both from re-architecting some of these systems in the first place so they're not publicly traded, and then maybe for things that are already publicly traded, how can humans, like just people in the Web3 space who are existing right now and say, what Mark is saying probably resonates deeper than it should with me, like how can they mitigate some of that pain and trauma that you have experienced and that you is that is probably going to be coming. Okay, I'll try to answer this this question in like two the two parts. I'll answer the second part first because it's much easier, which is like nurture your relationships outside of crypto. Have people close to you who literally don't like they should not know how crypto works. Maybe I you know, if you're a good friend like help them buy these things whatever, but it really is so nice to have people who like you can talk to about a whole lot of things that are not crypto related, especially during these like difficult times and people who aren't going through that as well, I think is like really important. So that's like kind of one, of course, number two is try not to attach your identity too much to the work that you're doing or the markets and these sorts of things. But that's like much easier said than done. The real kind of like best advice I can give is enjoy the ride, enjoy all the highs and all the lows and expect that there will be many highs and many lows. And I think that's the fun of crypto. I am personally of the opinion that like crypto is a very like transformational, like spiritually and personally transformational thing where like these difficult times cause a lot of like personal development and ego development, all these different things that are like really special and really meaningful in life. And they happen at a much more accelerated pace in crypto because of like how crazy everything is, both again at the highs and at the lows. And they're like real, the best piece of advice of like how to deal with it if it happens is take it one step at a time, you'll be fine. Don't get caught up in like what, the moment and step back and reflect on whatever. Um, so that's like the second half of this question. The, towards the first, I think your first half was, okay, what if you have a tradable token already? Or how do I think about these kind of like openness versus tradable tokens? Is that right? Yeah, I really laid a lot of questions on you at the same time. Um, <laughs> so I guess the question that I'll redirect it to is, mm -hmm. if you're starting a community, you're hearing this, or you know of people who are starting a community, I mean, it feels like everyone is right now. Mm -hmm. What is the approach to potentially mitigate this? And I think this is Maiko's approach also, but where you actually just don't have a token that's publicly traded. How do you think about that? Because I know there are also a few benefits that come with that in general outside of just this mental health piece. Yes. Our approach, my like my personal sort of take on this is like communities should have a part of themselves that are open and they, they should run events that are open. They should like constantly be trying to invite people in. That's like the whole goal of a community. If you think about a community as like a, a star in like outer space, right? Like it should be constantly trying to gravitate people into the center. That's the whole point. But there should be like a line that is curated. Right. There should be like some point where you're like actually looking, maybe you're not like looking at them on a Zoom call, but there's some degree of validating that a person should be continuing to go deeper into the community and getting more responsibility and getting more ownership and like some degree of like curation. And I think that curation is, yeah, generally super important and leads to a, a lot of like much higher quality, you know, interactions. I think like FWB ended up doing this in a really great way where you didn't just have to buy the token, you also had to apply because I think they realized over time that like, yeah, you, you need 
need some degree of, of curation. So I think that approach is like one that makes a ton of sense and it's, you know, never too late to add that sort of thing. And then, yeah, if you're starting a community, most of the time, like there's a lot of types of businesses in the world that are very like capital intensive where you need a high degree of like cash on hand at the beginning to do the thing. If you're talking about, I don't know, you need like a screen printing machine or a, I don't know, like an embroidery machine to start like a clothing business, right? Like you need to buy that machine. You need to get either a loan or investment or these sorts of things to get from zero to one. But communities are a really like special type of business where you don't need anybody's approval. You don't need anybody to say yes. You don't need a loan. You just need like people to be interested. And if you can have like a set of goals and a set of values and hopefully collect a group of people who all care about those goals and values and get them all energized around it. You don't need anybody else's permission. You can get everybody working together towards those goals. You can have these sort of schemes to efficiently share ownership and distribute that ownership to people who are doing these different like tasks or whatever. And then you can build in quiet. And of course, during a bull market, that's not very popular because you want to be loud and everyone's loud, right? And so that's like what our default sort of brain state tells us to do. But the flip side of that, again, is you don't get these sort of like tourist users or tourist community members, you know, where like these discords are like tens of thousands of people or, or thousands of people, whatever. How many of them actually come back? How many of them are actually sticking around versus if you had just taken a much more slow and steady approach from the beginning, like you might still have a lot more people around. That's like how I think about it is like grow slow, grow with intention, approve people and just get people interested. And I think that is actually the hardest part of building a community or a DAO even is like people spending their time on whatever that set of goals is. And if those goals are meaningful enough then, or, or potentially valuable enough in the future, then people will work for tokens or like what is technically like sweat equity and will hopefully realize, hey, wait a minute, if this works, like this could potentially be super valuable and would pay off for me. I want to try it. That's how I think about it. This kind of reminds me of this question that I feel like is coming up in a lot of DAOs that I'm in. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on this. It feels like there's this strange situation where FWB is one thing because their product is membership. So their sort of product is community. But for a lot of DAOs, it feels like there's this conflation between community and contributors where let's say a DAO is building a product and they have this like core team of people who are contributors who are building the product to probably own hopefully a reasonable amount of tokens, participate most in governance, all that kind of stuff. But then there's a community, which maybe is token holders, maybe it's not, but they're people who are mission aligned in the way that you're talking about, but maybe don't do work in a way that is a more traditional way that we would think about work. And so in a lot of DAOs that I'm in right now, it feels like we're trying to deal with this strange problem of figuring out what it means to be a community member versus a contributor, whether they're the same, what the role of people who are in the community, but not contributors like are. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, it's a, I don't know the first thing I'll say, I don't know the answer to that problem. In my head, I would <laughs> assume that the line is like, people who are contributors are like have been curated versus community is like for everybody. And like, for instance, like with bounties, like bounties are a great way to pull people in or rabbit hole is doing this now, right? It's a great way to pull people into your community and get them going deeper and deeper to become contributors. And you, if you think about it that way, as a sort of like pipeline where the top of the funnel is, I don't know, people who follow the, let's say Dow's Twitter account. And then the bottom of the funnel is like, people who are doing lots of stuff and you're like, hang on a minute, we want to promote you and give you a lot of tokens. And you get this different role that potentially gives you, you know, a private social space for people who are actual contributors and who have a, hopefully a higher degree of influence and ownership over, over the activities of that group. And, and so in that sense, like people on the outside, people in that community are like people in the orbit, people who care, maybe they're consumers of that content. You know, like I would call myself like in the FWB community, I'm not like in the discord, but I like go to the events and I like stay in tune with what they're up to and these sorts of things. So I'm not like a sort of core part of it. I'm like in the orbit. I'm like a, a sat satellite, if you will. And so I, I think it's totally appropriate that people in that context would have a lot less ownership and a lot less governance rights. I still think opinions are important. So like people in the core should ask the outside world, like what they think about it. But I think there's a high degree of like the crowd governing this kind of concept of, and I think we see this with like sushi right now, where like the crowd is governing and the people who are inside the thing are like at the mercy of the 
people. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily very appropriate or like healthy or meaningful or anything I want to be a part of because I like these people, again, like they can just buy the token. Like all it takes is to buy one of these tokens and then you have a say. And then your opinion like now is super meaningful and valuable. Like, where did you come from? What are you doing? All these other questions I would want to ask before, um, sort of giving a high degree of like power or influence to anyone who's in that context. So I, I, again, I take like a very conservative approach to these sorts of things because I think like intention matters and like history matters. And it's really hard to go back and redo things. Or once people have like bad experiences in particular with a community, like it's hard to undo that because those memories are always there. And so taking a conservative approach, a slow approach, a, a thoughtful one, I always like. And, and I think that reflects also in like the way you think about different contributors or whatever. Yeah, and that's some of the context I was even thinking about this in is the whole sushi conversation about how governance works, what types of decisions should be made by what people. And I feel like it probably comes down to this idea that money is not a good proxy for trust at the end of right. the day. And I feel like sometimes in crypto, we design that way because – and I know you've done a lot of thinking on like game theory – it feels like we can design that way because maybe sometimes game theory assumes that. I don't know. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a big movement, especially in the 2017 sort of era around like crypto economics and game theory. And everybody was all of a sudden talking about shelling points and whatever and rational actors. And then very quickly people realized that like the sort of social layer is actually more important with Bitcoin. Like there's a social consensus around the 21 million. The code actually doesn't matter. It's like social consensus around that code that matters. And so like, I think slowly people have woken up to the fact that tokens and these sort of like rational, I think like left brain things are not necessarily as important or certainly not like more important than the more like right brain aspects, like our emotions and sensibilities and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think like trust is not a bad thing either. Of course, with Bitcoin, it's great to have like money that is not at the whims of a central bank and all that stuff. And trustless in that context is a good thing. But in the context of like a DAO, especially one which is doing things in the real world, and we're not like not talking about a smart contract protocol DAO, but I'm talking like group of people who wants to accomplish something in the real world and wants to use DAOs as an entity to to do that as the vehicle for that change. Trust is a great thing. You want to have trust for your teammates, the people hopefully who are like making decisions. There should be a certain degree of trust and trust is very healthy and, and spaces or you know communities where there is no trust are like quite cold, quite desolate. That's not like a world I want to live in. And so for me personally, so with that in mind, yeah, I think like trust is really important and, and picking who you can trust, figuring out who you can trust, you know, that gets into like reputation and these sorts of things. But like, I think that matters a lot. And the social layer, I think is just like underappreciated in, in the crypto space. Oh, 100%. I think a lot of the human aspects of crypto generally are underappreciated, which I feel like is also why the word Web3 has been so popular among people in crypto as well, because it feels different because it's not really pointing to the mechanism. It's pointing to like the cultural evolution of where the web goes. Right. When you talk about web three being like spiritual, just as much as it is technological, what do you mean by that? Because I think that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> this is a hard question. This the everybody's experience is different, right? In life and with regards to I don't know spirituality or religion or all these things. And I don't want to like ever be prescriptive. I'll, so I'll try to speak as much as possible from a place of of uh, observation. But what from what I've seen, there's two main avenues I think for like sort of spiritual growth or personal development, whatever you want to call it, that happens in the context of Web3. One is one that we talked about earlier, which is like Web3 will give you incredible highs and incredible lows and will hopefully eventually break you. I mean, maybe not hopefully, but like Web3 will like eventually break you either. In a good way, a productive way, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of that breaking is usually productive when you, if you read about ego development theory, all that stuff, like it's a pretty well-known thing in human psychology that our, our sort of biggest moments of personal development happen during those breaking moments. And so it's always a pathway to go deeper. And and I encourage everybody to take those opportunities when life hands them to us. But yeah, ultimately, like you'll get burnt out either because the bull market will go on so long that you'll just get burnt out or it will stop and that will be very painful. So I think that's one part of it. But the other part that's more interesting, I think, to talk about in this context is like wealth creation. 
and abundance. And I actually did a Twitter thread about this uh, a few weeks ago because I just got really hype on this word abundance and, and wanted to go deeper on what it means to me. But you know, in, in my opinion, and when I think about it, I use the word abundance to think about this feeling of I have enough. I don't need any more, whether that's real world wealth or, you know, anything, right? It's like, I feel abundant when I feel like I have enough. I don't need to worry about how much I'm going to get if some pie is being split because I already know I have enough. So whatever's fair is fair, but I don't have a sort of personal need to get more than what might otherwise be coming to me because I'm already quite happy. And so I think like with crypto, like we're, it's so special because like there's sort of a reality that crypto creates very sort of abundant situations for a lot of people because of insane wealth creation, we're very early in the new technology. And for people investing in new technologies, there's like very high upside potential for them. Crypto is also a casino. So like people who like to gamble can make lots of money. So there's like high upside for people potentially who, who are able to succeed in that context. And so what I've seen, not this isn't true for everybody, but from what I've seen, like that accelerated movement to that space of like, uh, I have enough, then leaves people asking like, okay, now what? And I think this is what we see a lot, especially with the sort of crypto OGs who make lots of money, but who stick around and who continue to, to give back. One great example that comes to my mind is like Crypto Cobain on Twitter, Kobe is the up only show, whatever. But when you hear him talk, it's clear, like he's sort of transcended this need to like make more money, even though he, I'm sure continues trading, but he's like at this point trying to figure out what will make the world a better place. And, you know, I think his like worldview, I, again, I don't know him personally, but I think his worldview has probably changed pretty significantly as a result of this, especially from a spiritual context, because he's had that feeling of having enough. Um, I think there's like other elements to this too, but ultimately, yeah, Web3 as a spiritual avenue is like something really cool, an idea I find really cool and interesting because it, it was never meant to be that, but because everything's so accelerated and so crazy, that's where it ends up. Yeah, I feel like in an ideal world, we move towards a space that feels abundant for everyone, which I don't know if it's counter to how human brains are in the first place. But I do think there's something interesting there. And then the second piece that this kind of reminds me of is I think we have a strange challenge in crypto, which is that because there are so many opportunities to make money, which of course I think are still to your point about like that being something that you've observed and not true for everyone, which I, I completely agree with. I think for some people that's definitely true. And for other people, some of the barriers to entry just make that harder. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is that because if you're in like the right crypto circles doing some of the things that a lot of people are doing, you can watch people, especially even on like crypto Twitter, go from not having a lot of money to having a lot of money to mm -hmm. your point about abundance. And I think what's interesting about that is that sometimes I think what happens is that we build products then for people who are in that mindset mm. and who have that money. When like other people don't, which I think is an interesting challenge. And I think for some people, they definitely use it as an opportunity to say, okay, how can I actually make an impact and make this space more accessible and better and all of that? And then on the flip side, I almost feel like there is a world in which people are like, oh, cool. Everyone can angel invest when obviously right. that's not how people <laughs> actually are, which right. is interesting. So I'm curious how you think about basically like helping build this world with abundance while also recognizing that some people are not in that space. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I'm curious if you do, because it's like definitely an interesting tension that I see existing in the, I don't know, crypto, you know, Twitter world. Yeah, I think you touched on something super important. And when I think back on like core lessons we learned with Bounties Network, this is probably one of the most important ones that I like reflect on even still today. And it touches on this kind of concept we hear a lot in the DAO space of, oh, join a DAO, start contributing and trust that you'll get paid in the end. Like. No, mm -hmm. most people in the world cannot work for free in the hopes that they might get paid. That's just like not how the world works. And in the context of bounties, it was this idea of, oh, we don't want somebody to do this task who is only there for the money. We want someone who's there because they're intrinsically motivated or blah, 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 blah. And I think that, again, comes from this like very privileged space of having a lot of money or having wealth or whatever and feeling so comfortable that you can do whatever you want and spend time on whatever you want. But most people can't. And most people like need to work for a living and need to earn money and put food on the table and all these things. And having a bounty, like, yeah, maybe they are there for the money. And like, that's not necessarily an evil thing or it doesn't make them a bad person or it doesn't 
doesn't make them like any worse of a contributor or it doesn't mean you shouldn't work with them. You know what I mean? Like any of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just one of those preconceptions we get caught up with. And the most magical part is that like, oftentimes what we've seen is that if you start with the extrinsic incentives, that can be like a hook for getting people to go deeper. And then later continuing to contribute potentially because of the intrinsic motivation or it you know, creates a space within which that intrinsic motivation can prosper. But just because it starts with extrinsic doesn't mean it's like evil or should be looked down upon or anything like that, which I think is like something we, we think about a lot or people like I take people I hear a lot and, and one that I've had myself for a long time, but eventually was proven wrong because it was clear like, no, Mark, like you were speaking from a place of privilege, check yourself, step back. Like most <laughs> people can't do that. And when we think about it, like if you want crypto to go mainstream, like the majority of the world doesn't work on those terms. Like we have to play by their rules, if that makes any sense. And bringing crypto to people on their terms rather than bringing them in on our terms, I think is like a really important distinction there too. Oh my gosh. Yes. I completely agree with this. And it's so interesting because I'll catch myself doing this too, where I'm like, oh, we want intrinsically motivated people. But a lot of people who are in crypto now came into crypto because they made money on it or because they were trading it first or they thought of it as an investment. And so mm-hmm. it is totally like backward, but something that I think a lot of us do that we're like, oh, we don't want people who are motivated by money initially. Right. We only want people who are intrinsically motivated. But like everyone is motivated by money, one. And two, that right. doesn't make them bad people or people who can't learn more, usually it is that like little something that gets someone interested. And and honestly, it's partially also, I think, slowly getting people compensated for their time learning and then seeing what we have to offer in general. It's been cool Mm -hmm. to see DAOs also do this, where it's like, with DAOs, you don't have to buy into our system and gamble. You can Mm. spend your time and you'll get paid. There's still the challenge that you're talking about where You want to make sure that there are opportunities for people to know that they're going to get paid. I'm curious how you think something like work in that context will evolve. Do you think that this whole retroactive sort of funding for, which I know like retroactive public goods funding and all of that has been really amazing to watch Gitcoin like Spearhead and Vitalik, of course, like pushing this a lot, but it does feel like that tension exists there too. I'm curious if you think there's like a better hybrid type model for something like that. I think it's a really hard problem, this like sort of extrinsic versus intrinsic, the like retroactive distributions. Um, I think it touches on a really hard problem, which is like most of the time you don't know what someone's work is worth until after the fact. And that's just like a, a part of life that is like not even an organizational thing. One of the ways we do this, you know, at Myco, even just like for our employees is we try to do like a contract period at the beginning, just to get it a good understanding of like where people will fit in and then to do equity distributions after that and make promises after that, just because we just don't know how things will end up being. So I think there's like a, a part of that problem that's like never going away. I think with regards to the intrinsic versus extrinsic stuff, like I think you can test for intrinsic motivation in other ways or values alignment in other ways, without asking people to work for free and then paying them later, that is one way of testing that in a sort of self-selecting kind of way where people only do the tasks if they're intrinsically motivated. But you could test for it other ways. And that requires curation. It's like more expensive potentially, but like the trade-offs I think are, are tend to be like worth it. But going back to the beginning of the question where it's like, where does this leave work in the future? Like this to me is something super exciting. And again, going back to Maiko, this is a lot of how we think about it is like, how do we think about work as a speculative behavior where like ownership is flowing to those early contributors. I'll talk about it from micro perspective because like this is even true for like our startup where it's okay, either we can pay you a really high salary because I've sold this equity to like a venture capitalist or I can give you the equity and pay you less and you know still pay you like enough for you to survive, but like your upside won't be there because you recognize that the equity is actually potentially worth more. And that's of course like a decision individuals have to make and you know requires a certain amount of like comfort and risk level and all these things. But that to me is super exciting where people are like speculating with their time rather than speculating with their money because there's a lot of really talented people who don't have money, a lot of really capable and passionate and hungry people who don't have money, but who have lots of time. I think the trickiest part around that is like, A, how can you culturally, socially explain to people that sweat equity is valuable? I think if you have like enough of these early, oh, I earned this token or this equity early, like I am now really rich, like enough of those stories eventually percolate that like people realize, hey, wait a minute, maybe I should just be early enough. So that's like, I think part of it. But the other half of it is just like, practically speaking, you know, a venture capital fund is much more well-suited to evaluate like the risk profile, let's say, of a particular startup 
or DAO or whatever than like individuals are. Individuals don't have hours a week to spend looking at all the different platforms, understanding the competitive landscape, and then saying, ah, yes, I like your company because you are doing this different than all the other competitors. Like most people don't spend that time. Most people don't know. And so it makes like comparing them to, you know, a big venture capital fund, like the venture capital fund, like they know what they're doing and that's why they're there. And so this is like why it's, I think, a tricky problem. But that's like the utopian society I wish to live in is like where we don't need VCs because like people just work for lower amounts and ownership can flow to them. I love this. And I feel like I experienced this as a DAO contributor too, where it does feel like, especially in where the market is right now in terms of talent, everyone, everything is hiring. And so with DAOs, it feels like as someone who's coming in and wanting to provide some sort of value it has felt interesting to be like, oh, if I'm earning, and this is for liquid tokens, so it's obviously different, but if I'm coming into a certain community versus another one, like at the end of the day, there's probably a lot of different DAOs that I could contribute to. So the ones that I choose to spend my time in does really feel like an investment, which I think is interesting. The other thing that you touched on, and I think you have this concept with my co of like dilutive ownership, but it feels like there's this interesting balance between early contributors who take on risk but also continuing to incentivize people to come into the ecosystem. And this Mm. seems to be a broader conversation in a lot of different communities, whether it's Ethereum or, you know, specific DAOs, but it feels like early contributors do get a lot of ownership. And I'm curious how you think about that as an organization evolves, like early contributors leave, new people come in, how do you incentivize new people, but also make sure that, contributors who are early don't have an outsized amount of governance power given their Mm -hmm. involvement. Yeah. This is, I think like one of the most important problems that are still out there right now. It's a problem we're like very actively working on with Myco and like testing different things out and like iterating on different models. Actually, a few weeks ago, we settled on a sort of like new more, yeah, I don't know. We settled on a new model, which I'll explain right now that you'll get like the inside scoop or like the exclusive release. You heard <laughs> so we haven't it talked about first. it much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'll start like with the context around dilution and why we think dilution matters. And then I'll go into kind of like how we made it work. Basically what we think is that dilution is incredibly important in these sort of like social entities. When you think about a technology company, there might be a piece of, you know, the smart contracts or in in the earliest version or like these sort of core decisions or architectural decisions that are made or, you know, components that are built, all these different things that are done really early. Usually when you think about it, like a technology company or a product, like they last a pretty long time. Those decisions have a long lasting effect and they like continue to have that effect. And there's this concept of like, okay, we built this thing, it's done. We have this sort of shared ownership of it, but there's not as much continued important work that needs to happen. A lot of technology products like don't change over time. Craigslist is like a great example. And of course, tech companies, as they persist over long periods of time, like they typically grow and those engineering teams are, they're not like twiddling their thumbs, but the impact that any individual engineer is having over the like roadmap of the company or the course of the thing is much less than it was in the earlier stages because you're building on top of earlier foundations. This is different in a a community, right? Where like you have people who come and go where the value of a community doesn't come necessarily from like building on top of earlier components. It comes from the continued carrying of that torch. And this is something that I think is like the most important part of a community is like how long they can persist. How long your community has been around is, in my opinion, the most important metric for any given community. Of course, how long has it been around with certain numbers of people, whatever, whatever. But ultimately, it has to be true over time. Launching a community is really easy. Persisting a community is extremely hard. Keeping people around is extremely hard. Keeping them interested is extremely hard. And with that in mind, like it's not a sort of set it and forget it thing like a tech product. It's the exact opposite, where it's set it and keep setting it and keep resetting it. And that is actually harder and more important. And so with that in mind, we knew, okay, we wanted like a dilutive model that did two things. One, it encouraged people who got early ownership to stick around um, because if they didn't, they would like slowly be diluted away. And so you had to keep contributing. Otherwise your ownership stake would go down over time. And then two, this on the flip side is like when we were thinking again about this gravitational orbit type model of a community, which for the record, this is not like a mental model that is original. I, I stole it from something else. I don't remember what the project is called, but they have this like orbit model of communities. 
worth looking up if you could Google it. Anyways, so that concept, if you think about your community that way, like you need fresh sort of like fuel for those people who are continuing to come in. And if that's your community's goal is to bring people in, raise them up and do that on a continuous basis, there needs to be like more stuff flowing to those people. And so the dilutive model helps. Um, the way that my ecosystem works is, and I'll try to explain it as like simply as possible, is that every month, each co, each community has a million shares or points or tokens or whatever you want to call them. Um, let's call them points just for simplicity. They get a million points that they can be given out to different people. And by default, the way that it works is that like different pools of those points are given out to different roles. So in Myco, we have sort of two basic role primitives. You have a creator who's like the sort of admin and at the beginning has all the governance power. And then you have these like members who have a lot less governance power, but are interacting and contributing and still earning ownership. But in Myco, like our shares and our points don't necessarily couple the governance with the uh, profit rights. They're like separate. So these points are only profit rights. But anyways, going back, you can imagine that, okay, you launch a new community, you have a million points and you might say, okay, 30% of this is going to go to the creators. You know, 50% is going to go to members and then whatever remains will go into like the community's treasury. That way, you know, in case anything ever happens, like they have a spendable balance, if you will, that can be distributed at any given point freely based on the treasurer's desires or whatever. So what happens is if there's two members at the very beginning, you know, they're just like splitting that pool. And as more people are joining these different roles, you're getting a smaller share of this pool that is itself a cut of this like million tokens which are being released over time. And so you have this like linear dilution, which is very predictable. So you don't have this worry that people in the future are going to like overly dilute the people in the past. If you leave, you're screwed. You don't have that concept because dilution is capped. But at the same time, there is very real dilution that happens over time. And there is like fodder for new people to come in and get ownership and being able to rise up and earn a fair share. So we're like still developing this stuff. We're still modeling it out with a bunch of different sort of like schemes and different versions of this. But the key sort of thing that we're indexing on is if two people join in these different roles, right? Like if I join as a creator uh, and somebody else joins as a member on the same day and we're in the community for the same period of time, what is the ratio of our ownership percentage to each other? Is it like 20 to one? Is it 10 to one? Is it five to one? Is it two to one? We don't know like the right answer in terms of what that ratio should be. Less than five seems like really nice for the members and maybe not enough upside for the, the sort of like creators. More than 10, like 10 times more ownership for the creator than the members over that same period of time. That also starts to seem a little dangerous because there's just like such a large difference in ownership percentage between the two. Um, but that's like what we're really trying to think about right now and experiment and, and, and try to solve because, yeah, like we think that this existing model around either fixed supply tokens or even tokens that kind of like have small amounts of dilution, but very like unpredictably and think of like startup equity. We don't think that's necessarily appropriate either because, yeah, a community is like carrying a torch and new people need to carry that torch and they need to be incentivized for it. And the past carrying doesn't matter if new people don't carry it. There's tons of communities that have existed in history that right now are not meaningful because they, they don't exist anymore. Versus if you have a community that's been around for 20 years or 40 years or 100 years, those are like some of the most powerful and meaningful institutions in our lives because they've been around for so long. Religions have been around for hundreds of years. These are communities that are like continuing to have these torches carried. And that's like why they're, they're so meaningful. And thinking about communities over time and dilution over time rather than just like a fixed thing that happens at one point, I think is like important. Yeah, that is so interesting in the context of two things, which I think we could do a whole nother podcast on. One <laughs> is conflating governance and ownership, which you sort of mm. very briefly touched on is not what's happening, which is interesting. And mm -hmm. then the second piece being, yeah, it's almost like an innovation lever when you think about that ratio, because ultimately of course, innovation is not directly correlated to whether or not there's financial upside. Again, going back to this idea that money is a terrible proxy for so many human things that we pretend it's a good proxy for. But mm. it does feel like that ratio is partially about what is the upside for a creator of something and how much do you want to try to incentivize creators to make new and interesting communities. So it's fun to watch crypto sometimes reinvent systems that already exist because they work well, but then sometimes mm. actually stumble upon different levers and things to play with that don't feel 
like the wheel has been invented yet at all. Like mm. it does feel like some of these things are pretty unique to Web3 because it's just, I don't know, maybe there are ways that this has been done in the past that have worked well, but I would bet not really in the scope that this is going to be impacting people. For sure. And dilution, I think, is not something that's been experimented with in, if you look at the history of corporations and things like that, people weren't thinking about this problem or this this sequence of problems, these like heavily dilutive models. It's in fact, like typically been the opposite. And yeah, it's like definitely lots of room for for experimentation. Of course, we'll get certain things wrong and it helps to be able to evolve things (laughs) if that happens. But yeah, it's nice to be I think like on the cutting edge and like willing to experiment. And it's like, uh, I think of Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, his like man in the arena speech where it's like better to have tried and failed than to have sat on the sidelines critiquing the whole thing and never have done anything. So it's always yes. fun, fun potential there. That feels particularly important to remember as we wrap up and as whenever the, the bear market hits, if it ever does, which I'm sure it will, particularly important to remember in terms of continuing to experiment. But Mark, it was so fun to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? First off, thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. In terms of finding me, I mean, I'm Mark Balin on Twitter. If you like what I said about Myco and you want to reach out, I'm always available, mark at myco.space. Send me an email. I love to talk to people. I'm very responsive. Send me a DM. My DMs are open. I'm like very available if people ever want to jam about this stuff. We don't have a publicly tradable token for Myco. We aren't trying to be too loud during the loud portion of the market cycle, but we are always interested in finding people who care about the same things we do. And yeah, if the things we talked about today resonated with you and you want to hear more, you want to play with Myco, any of these things, always feel free to reach out and we'd love to hear from you and yeah, pull you closer into our orbit and give you a big hug. I love that. What a wonderful way to close out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you again for having me. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcast I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.